I think my wife, Emily, is a very lucky person. And I don't say that because she is married to me. If anything, that would make her a very unlucky person. Uh, I say it because she is extremely good at finding four-leaf clovers. You know, those little green plants that are all over the yard that usually have three leaves? It's considered lucky to find ones with a genetic quirk that give them four leaves. A scientist actually came up with a a number of what your odds are to make a lucky find. One in 10,000. That's how likely you are to find a fourth leaf on a clover. Now compare that to your odds of becoming a millionaire. If you're over 60, they are one in seven. If you're a millennial, though, your odds drop to about one in 55. That's actually not bad compared to your odds of winning the lottery. That's one in 300 million. And filling in a perfect March Madness bracket, one in 6.2 billion. Now to, to get that last one would mean you are a truly lucky person. I know not everyone believes in luck. Some folks say there's no chance at all, uh, especially if you believe in an all-powerful God that controls literally everything. But compare your odds of good luck to those of something awful happening to you. Odds of being struck by lightning are 1 in 700,000. Your odds of being in a plane crash, 1 in 60 million. But we could also talk about the odds of something not just bad, but something unjust happening to you. In the midst of a nation with peaceful demonstrations, as well as looting and rioting, some things are set up in a way that is truly unfair. Every year, over a thousand people are shot and killed by police officers. In a country of 300 million, the odds for many of us are in our favor. But if you are a black man, the odds of you getting shot and killed by police during your lifetime are one in 1,000 a wholly unacceptable number. In Hillsdale, that would be up to 10 people getting shot by the police department. We would be up in arms. We would not tolerate such a situation. These are odds that we have control over. It's not luck. It's about how we choose to live with one another. I think it's important for not just our nation, but our community, our church, to wake up to the injustice around us, to be alert to it, and to confront bias wherever we see it. One of the most surprising places I have found bias and the support for unjust systems is in my own life. Too many times I suddenly realize that the way I am thinking, the presuppositions that I hold, lead to unfair prejudice against others. So if you found yourself saying over the last week or so, I'm not a racist or I think everyone should be treated equally, don't just check out of the conversation. That is exactly what I said about myself 20 years ago. And even though I'm trying hard, I'm trying to do the right thing by my brothers and sisters, I still find my heart is off sometimes. I am wayward and I need to repent and lean on God to teach me a better way to live with others. So if you haven't found bias in your heart, if you think racism is someone else's problem, I implore you to take some time to reflect deeply. Sit with people that you know who are much 
further along in this journey. Listen to their experiences. The people that are different from you. Really hear them. Just last week, we confirmed several young people in our church. And one of them is a winsome young lady. We were talking about the church and how the church can address the real problems of this world. So I asked her, what are some things that you see that are wrong with the world? What are real problems that we could address? And she did not hesitate. She said right away, racism. She's African-American, and she told me how, how people do things all the time and don't even realize they are being racist. Now, I hope she wasn't talking about me, but I recognize it's entirely possible that I do things that are a response out of my own ignorance that insult and demean others. One psychologist calls this aversive racism. See, 60 years ago, it became not only immoral, but also illegal to discriminate against others. But racist feelings didn't just go away. Instead, racism became more subtle. People would simply avoid other groups. They would bury their feelings of discomfort. So in time, we have become disconnected from our own feelings toward others. That's why it's called aversive racism. The blatant, overt acts of racism are far rarer here in the United States. But these subtle forms, they stick with us. They come from the media and other places as violence Drugs and poverty are associated with certain groups. So this psychologist says, in his work, he's found about two-thirds to three-quarters of, of white Americans practice this unconscious, implicit racial bias. The good news is that most people, if they are put in a situation where there is a clear right and wrong, one act of discrimination against a healthy and appropriate response, we will more often choose the good and right thing. The problem is, it's too easy to ignore the subtle ways we might favor someone like us or who is in the majority. When we monitor our behavior and check ourselves internally, we are doing the right thing. But when we are on autopilot, we often default to aversive racism. The trick then is to be more aware of what we are thinking and feeling. And when we feel uncomfortable, instead of backing away, that is exactly the time to move forward toward those people. The more interactions you have with someone or a group of people that make you feel uncomfortable, the more you think about them as individuals, as humans who are real people. It doesn't mean you've gotten rid of your bias, but it means you are one step closer to a healthier, more loving response to your neighbor. Now, this is the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever given, but it's a really important topic, and I think it connects well with our main topic for today, because this same dynamic that happens between people of different races also plays itself out when it comes to gender. I have one more Sunday with you after this, and then Pastor Julie Lee will be the new pastor here. She is the first woman to ever lead Hillsdale United Methodist Church. We have had 37 white 
men in a row in the 146-year history of our church. And now, finally, the bishop has appointed someone who can get things right around here. When the announcement was first made, some of you were delighted. Uh, I heard the cheers and joy some of you had when you realized a woman had been appointed here. Others, though, may have some hesitation. You may not be sure if it's even biblical for women to be pastors. So we're going to take a look at some of those scriptures. What does the Bible have to say about this topic? Is it right that this church will have a female pastor? Our scripture for today comes from 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Hear now God's word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And from Galatians 3.28 there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I want to take a couple of minutes to run through the scriptures to see if there are ever places where women are in leadership and then come back to 1 Timothy and some of the other verses similar to it. So, as you go through the scriptures, you'll come across many stories. One of them is of Deborah, who was a judge of Israel. Judges are kind of like temporary kings, but they have a strong religious bent. Deborah leads the nation of Israel both religiously and militarily. She raises an army and defeats the Canaanites, the enemies of Israel. Later, you see Huldah. It's a name you may not be familiar with. She was a prophetess during the time of King Josiah, found in 2 Kings, when the king asked for the money in the temple to be counted and distributed for repairs to the temple. They make a discovery. They find the book of the law, what we would call the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. This would be like us taking up a collection to raise millions of dollars for our church then putting the money in our safety deposit box only to discover the world's last copy of the Bible was in there. Imagine the church operating without the guiding words of the Bible. That's what was happening then. So they turned to Huldah, the prophetess. Now this is at the same time as the far more famous prophets Jeremiah and Zephaniah, but everyone turns to Huldah, to interpret the scriptures. She reads it. She interprets it for the king. And Josiah springs into action. Restoring the nation to God-centered worship. There are a number of other women. Who are prophets. Miriam, Isaiah's wife. Anna, Philip's daughters and more. Uh, there's Junia. Who is called an apostle by Paul. This is a strange one actually. When later translators interpreted this passage. 
they changed Junia, a woman's name, to a man's name, Junius, to hide the fact that Paul named a woman as an apostle. There seems to be a a lot of women leading in the church, but on the other side of the argument, you have these two passages, one we read today in 1 Timothy that says women should keep silent, and a second in 1 Corinthians that says something quite similar. But if you're going to decide the issue just based on the number of verses for or against women in ministry, people who oppose women's ministry would be the ones denying the biblical record. So let's look at that 1 Timothy passage. The Apostle Paul wrote the book. He says, women are required to be silent. Now, that strikes me as strange. Women should be silent in church. Women sing in our church. They aren't silent then. And Paul elsewhere specifically says women are allowed to pray and prophesy. That's not silence either. What is going on then that Paul is so adamant about women learning from men in silence? There are are two things we need to know to make sense of this passage. One is that back then, a teacher would take questions from those listening to the lecture. There was a back-and-forth conversation throughout a teaching. So someone could ask anything they wanted. Today, we might say something like, there is no such thing as a bad question. But then, they believed questions asked out of ignorance were awful. If you didn't understand what was going on, You had to go and study elsewhere. The second thing we know uh, is that most women, not all, but most, lacked a formal education. So if you don't know the basics of the Hebrew scriptures and someone is teaching about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, you might interpret, uh, interrupt asking what sanctification means or what propitiation is. That could wreck the lesson. So Paul says, don't interrupt Be silent. And in another passage, go home and learn from your spouse so you can come back and understand these teachings. Now, there is another possibility here. Paul might be dealing with a cultural situation here. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that it is shameful for a woman to speak in public, he may be saying that it is culturally shameful meaning he is very concerned about the church's witness to those who are not believers. If we were going to apply that same principle today here in the United States, you tell me, what would be a better witness to the people out there? Restraining women from teaching and leading churches or empowering them to do so? Don't think about what churched people would say. What would people who don't go to church think about women leading? If you don't know what their answer might be, go and ask. Move toward those people who might make you feel uncomfortable. Increase your interactions with them so you can better understand them. Be a better, more loving neighbor to others, especially those who may not not know Jesus just yet. You know, in ancient Judaism, there is only one rabbi who takes on women as students, as disciples of his teachings. Can you guess who it is? It's Jesus. We see it in several places, but in particular when Mary and Martha 
welcome Jesus into their home. Mary sits with the other disciples and listens to what Jesus has to say. See, we we miss this today and make this story about being a busybody, but really it's this radical counter-cultural moment where Jesus says, women can learn and grow and be disciples just like men. Here in Hillsdale, your next pastor will be a woman. And you've got to ask yourself, how will you receive her? How will you respond to her ministry? Will you be like Paul and consider your witness to the wider community? Will you be like Jesus and receive men and women alike as disciples with much to teach us? One thing I know is that Pastor Julie has a Master of Divinity degree from Drew and another one from Yale. I also hear she bakes way better than I do. So to me, Hillsdale is getting a two-for-one deal here. She has a superior education to me. She comes with the full confidence of our district superintendent. She is going to have an incredible, amazing ministry in this church as she learns and grows and teaches all of us what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now it's up to you to receive her with open arms, to be attentive to feelings of discomfort, and to help her minister to this community as Christ would have us. Will you join in? Will you be a part of the bright future this church has? I pray you will. Amen? Amen.